Welcome to the Society of Construction Law Australia podcast, the podcast where we look at legal and technical issues facing the Australian construction industry. My name's Melissa Yeo, and I am chair of the Society's Communications Subcommittee. The Society is pleased to bring you a recording of the paper delivered by Scott Alden at the Society's conference in Hobart that took place in May this year. Scott's paper, entitled When Opportunity Knocks, Is NEC4 the Answer to Australia's Broken Standard Form? was another conference favourite, earning a spot in the top three favourite papers as voted by those in attendance. If you'd like to see a copy of Scott's paper, as well as the others delivered at the conference, please visit the Society's website, scl.org.au. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up to become a member and to receive updates about the Society's initiatives and our 2023 National Conference coming to you soon. Thanks again for joining us. Okay, thanks. Thanks very much and good morning everyone. It was lovely to catch up with some of you last night and good to see so many of us here this morning. Anyway, I haven't got very long, these sessions aren't, but that's good. It means we get to talk about sort of more things than we would otherwise. So I will pretty much get straight into it. And I'm talking this morning about NEC4 and we get there towards the end of the presentation and what we talk about first is the sort of where we are now, because this title of this presentation says, um, well, we've got an opportunity and it's knocking and it makes a presumption that the Australian standard forms that we know and love are broken. And I suppose we should probably just think about that for a minute and ask ourselves why and if they are, you know, are they broken such that they themselves can't be fixed or are they broken that we need something else? I think the other thing to say about um, collaborative contracts and if we use Australian standards or whatever it is that we might use, and this has been said, but it probably bears repeating, is to some extent it doesn't really matter what contract you put in front of somebody. Um, it takes a fundamental sort of mind shift and shift in mindset and uh, history and other things for people to actually be collaborative. So you can use a collaborative contract uh, with adversarial people. It won't make much difference and vice versa. You can use an adversarial contract with people who are there for best for project outcomes and work together and uh, it, you'll have a great outcome. So that's not saying that we shouldn't use an adversarial contract at all. I'm just saying it's not the panacea that will fix everything because there's a lot more to it than that. So putting a new contract in front of somebody and saying, sign that, she'll be right. There's probably a bit of training, a bit of relearning and a bit of understanding that goes with it, which I think is an important part of rolling out any new contract. So let's just have a quick look at the current landscape. And as I say, if it makes a presumption that the current contracts are broken, I suppose we should talk about a couple of things. And one is, you know, they're basically 20, 30 years old, whether we're using 2124, 4300, 4902, 4122 is newer, fine. But the, certainly the construction and design and construction contracts are 20 to 30 years old. And that's just a, an observation. And they certainly need a lot of change as a result of that. And they come from an era. And an era born from, you know, adversarial contracting, sure, and an era that, 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 that embraced that and worked with that and full risk allocation. And that's, that's fine. We then evolved through partnering, through to alliancing, through to a collaborative procurement model, early contractor involvement, which is collaborative procurement, and then tried to roll that into collaborative contracting. So that's kind of the, the journey. And when you're a contract, 20 or 30 years is a long time, and you, you probably had your day, and all of us use them. And we use them because we need standard forms. So there is a need for a standard form of contract to a degree, because much as the lawyers in the room would love this and the clients probably wouldn't, we'd love for clients to come to us and say, 
Scott, we've got this great new project and, and we're happy for you just to, just to draft a contract from scratch. And we don't care how long it takes or how much it costs. That would be wonderful, but it can't happen. It won't happen because of the timeframes and the budgets that go along with it. So there's got to be a starting point and a useful starting point. And when we look at the Australian standard contracts that we use, a measure on whether or not they're broken is, you know, the amount of markups that they have, obviously. And when there's far more red than black in any document, you kind of say, well, maybe it's time to kind of start again. So there was a great study done in 2014. Uh, Matthew, I think, is on a plane to London right now, but he did it at the University of Melbourne in conjunction with this society on the use, adoption, change of standard form contracts in Australia. And that's a study that's obviously a bit dated now, but still, it, uh, the, the, the stats would be a little different, but, but there's a large-scale use and adoption of the AS contracts. So the AS suite up the top of this bar chart um, account for 70% of then 70% of project rollout in, in Australia. And when asked about reasons, and some of these were, um, were, were in this survey that they did, these are the reasons that people use them. And this is what the survey said, at least other than the last two, which is just a, a reason that I think in, or should be included. But the first seven, um, they talk about the reasons why. And one's familiarity. So, well, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. That's fine. But I guess we're saying it is broke. So we need to fix it <coughs> to a large degree. But there's that familiarity. So, well, you know, it's delivered projects for us successfully over the last 20 or 30 years. So it'll deliver the next one. And that's fine. So let's just keep, keep going. Uh, so there's a familiarity, familiarity with the form. And, and coupled with that really is at number eight, that fear of change. And people are very fearful of change. And people also sort of get concerned about, well, it's that sort of IBM factor that people talk about as well, which is if you're a board member or a government minister, no one's going to necessarily sack you. Um, if you fail using a project with a known and, and previously successful standard form contract, but if you, if you fail in a project and you're using a brand new contract, then it's the sort of double whammy and you're gonna get seriously challenged about that. So there's a, a bit of that fearfulness that goes along with it as well. So familiarity, fear of change, Suitability of risk profile, well, I mean, that's just up for grabs. Maybe back in 1990s, it did suit the market, but now it doesn't so much where risk should be allocated much better. And people talk about all the time adopting the Australian standard approach to risk sharing, risk, risk, risk allocation, um, evolved from the Abrahamson's principles back in the 50s, which is party best place to manage and take risk should take it. And that's great. And it's a great, it's a, it's a wonderful thing to, to say. And it's a great aspiration to strive for, but it's rarely actually achieved. Uh, and what tends to happen, just like we heard in the last session, is that buyer shifts all, uh, all of the risk over to seller or principal back to contractor, um, as much, and, and that it continues. And that is um, not optimal. And in a world where governments in particular need to attain value for money, that can't be a, a value for money outcome when you're overpaying for risk that you should be retaining or sharing. That's your pay, you're paying unnecessarily. So that's not right. Uh, minimizing transaction legal costs. Yes, I'm sure continuing to use a standard form and cutting through bespoke drafting would do that. Ease of contract administration. I guess we can hear from the project managers and engineers about that <laughs> more, than, more than us necessarily, but at least you've done it before. So you know, you, know, you know how to do it. So you roll your arm over and fall back into it. And that can be a problem when using something new, be it GC21 and EC4 or FIDIC, if you're someone who's used to AS contracts, then you'll continue to administer them just like you have for the last decade or two. Capability to reflect deal, forms are well-drafted. Well, again, I guess, you know, if they had their time and of their time, they probably were, but there's a lot of outdated language, a lot of unnecessary cross-referencing. 
And one thing that NEC4 does very well is it's written very nicely, it's written in plain English, and it doesn't cross-reference at all. There is not one single clause that cross-references another one. And when you're reading through contracts and perpetually flicking from one side to another, that can be uh, somewhat annoying, distracting, and confusing and lead to difficulties, whereas NEC4 does not have that or any, any of the NECs. Um, people from the organisation just say you've got to use it. And the last one there, nothing else available. So these are the reasons people continue to use old, the old standards. Problems with them, too many changes. They're not up to date and uh, they are written from an adversarial platform. The reasons they are, to, they are amended, change the risk profile, change of law, make it easier to administer, improve bad drafting, and there are some clauses which through uh, judicial challenges have been found to be void, so they're either fixed by Australian standard publication or just by drafters, and there was famously some dispute resolution clauses found to be void back in the day which have been fixed since then. So these are the reasons why we changed them. I'm not going to go through each of these, but there's just a long list of the sort of current laws that we look at. And some of these laws we need to reflect in all of the contracts. Some depends on the deal and other ones possibly and most likely don't really need clauses, but people might put clauses in the contract anyway. But perhaps they don't need to be in there. But there's a lot of laws that change. We're in a, in a, in a time right now, not just because of COVID, but partly where laws are changing very, very quickly and, uh, and the contracts sort of need to keep up. So what does adversariality mean uh, when we've got our contracts? They're written in an adversarial style. There's a strict allocation and transfer of risk, lots of notice requirements and time bar claims. And what's interesting about uh, notice requirements and time bar claims and other things like that is one thing that NEC4 has and the NEC contracts generally, but also what AS11000 had, which I'll come to in a moment, and some of you will clearly remember that and some people in the room were involved in it, was this sort of good faith concept. And we continue to put good faith concepts in our contracts to today. And there was a case written in the UK oops, that looked at good faith in the context of time bar clauses and notice provisions and time bar in particular. And basically, um, as has been said time and time, time again, a good faith clause does not require you to prefer the other party's interest to your own. We all know that. But what a good faith clause does do or did do in the UK on an NEC4 case that was reported is requires you to not exploit the other party. And that was an interesting decision, an interesting statement by the judge about exploitative practices. And I think a lot of people involved in Australian standard contracts in particular, not because of the contracts perhaps, but partly because of just the um, personalities or the types of the clients and the buyers, is that there is, they would feel exploited sometimes, particularly when there are hardline approaches taken to uh, late uh, notice clauses or, um, or, or time bars, which, are, which are, are brought down on otherwise very valid claims. So that was interesting and again sort of couples with that uh, working together collaboration and not just taking a point because you can in a contract. So they also encourage parties to focus on their own interests whereas collaborative contracts are about sort of the project really they're supposed to be anyway which is and that's where the procurement model of ECI for example and, and it, for those of you that don't know NEC4 has ECI in it already so it's part of the suite, so NEC4 has got clauses to cover the stage one ECI contract, and then it sort of folds neatly into stage two. Whereas here, at the moment, you sort of begin with a partially bespoke service contract for the stage one activities in an ECI project, and then you just end up signing an AS4902. Perhaps 
And then you lose a lot of that collaboration that you might have uh, created through that collaborative procurement process because you're straight into an adversarial contract. So that doesn't really work either. There's no incentive for win-win solutions. So in NEC4, it's got a lot of incentives, not only about early completion, we've had that in standard forms here for a while, but also about looking for technology and uh, improvements and sharing some savings about that or um, being able to make decent claims for things to improve the product along the way. And um, there's high levels of disputes. So we, I'm not going to talk about 11,000 very much, other than the fact that it's probably a bit of a shame that it didn't continue to, uh, to, to it, the journey that it was on. It was started being drafted 2013, was on a journey and came very close, I think, to being finally drafted. And in 2017, it, uh, just, that, that, that process stopped. And it had some good concepts from um, collaborative contracts like NEC4 and elsewhere. It had good faith, it had early warning, and a lot of us would have seen some, a reasonably completed draft of it as well. And so PPP projects and collaborative contracts have these types of clauses in them, acting in good faith. And we could talk about what does good faith mean for a long time. I've hardly got enough time to talk about collaborative contracts, let alone good faith, but it is something that bears thinking about, which is well, what, what, do, what do we mean by that? And it's just, is it just words or do they actually mean something? And I just said just before, that the case on this, when we've got a few cases on good faith here in Australia, but not associated with collaborative contracting, but the case from the UK on this says, you know, you can retain your interest, but don't exploit, which is, which is good. Early warning, now they're good as well, because um, that basically incentivizes or requires people, parties to keep, a, keep their eye on the ball, really, in horizon scan to say, well, what's coming up, which might slow down this project, cause a delay, cause an increase in cost or anything like that. And rather than hide from it and hope that, you know, you're not found out if perhaps you're the contractor and so that's fine because maybe the delay won't be enforced or maybe you'll be able to sneak through your variation. Rather than that, you put it on the table and say, look, this is something that we haven't planned for and so it's coming. So how can we work together to avoid it, to mitigate, to minimise the impacts of it and maybe to share some of the pain around it as well. So that early warning stuff's good. It's sort of carrot and stick, or maybe it's kind of um, incentive and there's a stick if you don't do it. The stick being, if it's found that you knew about something and didn't bring it to the other party's attention um, in these types of clauses, what tends to happen is you lose the right to claim for it later. What otherwise might have been a valid claim under the contract, suddenly it isn't. And that may not sound very collaborative, and I suppose in the end it's not. And I think in the end, a contract at its end point can't be, unless you're doing a, a pure alliance contract. There needs to be some kind of you do this to this standard by the time that it needs to be done by. Let's work together to get there. But if there's something wrong, I need to have, I need to be able to hold you to account for your obligation to do and my obligation to pay. So that doesn't mean it's adversarial. It means in the end, it sort of has to be, I suppose. There has to be some accountability, but it means we don't have to kind of be adversarial in its administration all the way along. It's really the, the sort of difference. Whereas that pure alliance process in a real pure alliance was never adversarial, really, other than willful neglect, default and other things and fraud and stuff like that. So you can sort of run the gamut of the spectrum of adversariality, um, pure alliancing and, and no disputes, and then somewhere in the middle. And people talk about collaborative contracts as alliancing for the faint-hearted, which I think is quite a nice way to describe it, really, um, because it sort of says, well, we're not quite brave enough to fully join hands and, and jump in full bit with our feet both, uh, both, both, both in. But we are definitely brave enough to try to work together and try to improve outcomes. But if it all sort of goes, goes to the wall, then we can take action, even though we don't really want to. And that's not where we're starting from, but there has to be the ability to do that. And I, I think I agree with that. 
Okay, so collaborative contracts, there's some definitions there from Defence and from the ACA, and we heard from, uh, from John this morning um, on what that is. And if you look at the bold words there, so um, from the Defence Government uh, manual there on, 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 on relationship contracting, collaborative contracting, good faith, no blame, balanced risk allocation, and avoid disputes. And all of those themes are very central to collaborative contracting and, um, and central to forms like the NEC4. Recognised features, as I've said, good faith, important. Having an identification of mutual goals, uh, maximising benefits, long-term arrangements, early warnings, early involvement, being transparent, governance arrangements. We spoke about those this morning, governance arrangements and the way that these projects are governed, managed, um, are, it's an important reflector of how they're actually, whether they're adversarial or not. So improving governance arrangements, not just we're going to have uh, a superintendent and that's and they're going to either certify and, and approve and value things or they're just going to manage you day to day, but we don't really know and it's all a bit confusing as to what hat they're wearing on any given day and all that stuff. Just try to do it a bit better with uh, different tiers and layers of, of governance. Governance about project management as one layer, but then also about issue resolution as another layer as well, and just trying to keep those issues away from uh, going particularly badly. So on issues fair, timely disputes and issues resolution. I mean, you need to have a disputes process and a disputes clause, obviously, unless you're in that pure alliance regime, as I say, so you've got somewhere to go if you need to. And the NEC4 talks about uh, adjudication and also dispute boards and dispute avoidance boards. So it's got a couple of options that you can choose around that, all of which work. And going back to AS11000, that was also uh, going well in that regard around dispute avoidance boards and having companion, companion manuals about how those disputes might work. And so, you know, there's a recognition that just having a, a clause that asks for a tiered approach to senior executives, mediation, binding arbitration or litigation, fine, uh, but that perhaps we can just do a bit better in those early stages to keep away from expensive, timely litigation. Incentives, a big part of collaborative contracts. Um, this, this one's about the pure alliancing, waiving rights to sue each other. So that's only in certain kinds of collaborative, contract, collaborative contracts, certainly not all of them. And I'm not a big fan of, uh, of those sort of contracts which don't, in the end, have some kind of ability to be enforced in some way. That's just probably the lawyer in me, I guess. But I think that, that really we need to have that uh, in there. Prudent risk-taking, risk-sharing, being fair, and also they're known for being common sense. Here's a kind of few boxes of um, partnering collaborative arrangements that have been around for a while. Um, NEC4 start at the end there is what we're going to come to now. But before that, we spoke just before about GC21, this version, that version. And I don't know, I, I've used GC21 a fair bit. So I'm sure a lot of people in here are familiar with it as well. But um, for it to sort of call itself a collaborative contract or a partnering contract, frankly, is a bit of a joke, really. And I always say, that it takes more than a good faith clause, which nobody really knows what it means, and a kickoff workshop and a closeout workshop to be collaborative, because that's really all it does, other than a fully risk allocated adversarial AS2124. GC21 has got those three things, but other than that, not really very much. So it's a fully risk allocated um, to the contractor, uh, government pays, contractor does, uh, contract GC21. I'm not I am, it sounds like I'm criticizing it, I'm, I'm not really. It works and does the job that it does, but let's not put a false label on it. Let's not pretend it's something that it isn't. That's all I'm saying. Um, so managing contractor was another early form uh, evolved through the 90s by defense and others of um, iterations of ECI 
turnout cost arrangements, um, bringing down timeframes and trying to do better with risk allocation. So managing contractor works. ECI, I'm a big um, evangelist of ECI. I love ECI projects. I think they work very well. And all the ones I've been involved in have proven that. And I think if we're going to keep on using ECI pro processes, then we need something that works well with them. And an EC4 does, because it's already sort of, as I said before, in there. One of the big risks of um, a successful collaborative project, as I've mentioned before, is that you lose the collaboration if you just fall back to a adversarial contract in stage two. And so we need to avoid doing that. And I've seen that happen. And it doesn't happen if you have an, an EC contract collaborative all the way through from EOI selection of ECI contractor stage one right the way through to project completion. You're using the same contract from the start. Then alliancing and IPD contracts, as they're being called now, um, integrated project delivery, which is government's form, I suppose, of collaborative contracts. And, um, and it's, it's fine. It works well. And it recognizes current thinking around, uh, around risk allocation and collaboration. And then we've got an EC4. So moving to an EC4, and I'm sure you all know we've got the lovely ladies in the lobby there, and they're in the room here as well from an EC4. And um, so go and see them. Go and flick through the contract. It's great they're um, sponsoring this because as I said before, I think it's all, if we recognize that we need something else, then I suppose we need to look for it. And, and there are alternatives. I think really, you got to, at the moment, you choose between a FIDIC, I think, I guess, and an NEC4, unless we're going to get some updated Australian standards. But do we need them to be updated? Will Australianized NEC4 <laughs> or FIDIC do the job for, for us? So do we need to do that? That's an open question, I suppose. It's been a slow adoption though. So there was a record so to some large, I've had clients talk to me about changing their, um, their template contracts and they use either GC21 or AS contracts. And we're talking about New South Wales government or universities particularly. And they ask, you know, let's line up the clauses and see which one sort of suits us better. And let's look at GC, let's look at AS and let's look at NEC4. And there is a bit of a fear of change, as I mentioned at the beginning. And as I say to some of these clients, you know, if you're a small government department or just a university, then you sort of want someone else to be the trailblazer and sort of uh, show that it works and then maybe uh, knock off the edges and make it better for an Australian market because you're, you're not big enough to do that, whoever, whoever it is that I'm speaking to. Sydney Water is, CSIRO both are. So, and they're the ones that are currently using it. And so hopefully, that process will continue. What we need from their use of NEC4, I think is some good news stories. So we've got uh, some projects that have been completed using NEC4 in Australia and people saying, geez, that was a good journey, not, geez, those Sydney water guys, they kept beating us around the heads just like they always did. And so, so much for collaboration. We don't want to be hearing that. And I'm not quite sure which of those two we're going to get, but if we get the latter, then I think that'd be a shame and a lost opportunity. So NEC has been around a while, very successful in the UK. What might be lesser known is it's used um, enormously in the Australasian market, actually. New Zealand government and contractors use it, and there is a very healthy suite of um, New Zealand Y clauses, and that is the customised clauses sort of for in-country. These are called Y clauses, and we'll come to the structure in a moment. So we've got, the, well, we've got some Australian Y clauses too, by the way, and I'm not sure if um, someone I was speaking to yesterday is here, but uh, they were involved in the drafting of those and they reflect the security of payment regime around the Australian market. But they're used in Hong Kong, greatly used in New Zealand, obviously used heavily in the UK and Europe and delivered some very, very large projects very successfully without much amendment. So they've got uh, ECR, like I said, they're clear, they're, they're well, well written 
and they've got BIM as well, information modeling clauses in there as well, because they're obviously fairly recent. Version four being published in 2017 and the alliancing companion contract to that 2018. Australian projects, not as I say, not many, not enough, but um, there's, there is that, that still that kind of fear of, well, let's just use the same one, or we haven't got enough time now to trial something new or anything like that. But Sydney Water is really committed to it, which is great. I think some of the senior decision makers there probably come from the UK, well, I know that they do, and the people that were, were suggesting NEC 3 slash 4 a couple of years ago uh, were big advocates of it because of the good, um, the good experiences they'd had in the UK. So Sydney Water's $4 billion framework program, um, that's on the Lower South Creek, and so Capital Works program using it at the moment, and CSIRO just last year um, using it for their square kilometre array project in Murchison. So that's good, but I think that, you know, we, need, we need a bit more than that. This is the suite, and it's like any suite. It's like the Rainbow Books. It's like the Australian Standard Suite to some degree. There's a contract really for, for many things. So we've got a construct contract, an EPC contract, professional services contract, a framework contract, an alliance contract, an FM contract with companion subcontracts. So that's the sort of range of contracts that we've got with um, the NEC forms. The way that they're sort of done is we've got a core, core clauses. And I think if you look at some models of contracts here in Australia, you've, you might be familiar with the defence contracts, for example. They've got core clauses, can't be touched, you know, so they get, they, we need them for all of our contracts. And then we've got optional clauses. And NEC is a bit the same, so that'll be familiar to those of you that will know those forms. Core clauses um, are there, so they're just one to nine, the ones that you'd expect, and basically every contract would need those. We then uh, go to disputes clauses, so we choose which one we want. W1, W2 is alternative forms of adjudication. W3 is an avoidance board process. And then we've got option clauses, and there's a lot of them. Um, I'll come to them in just a second. There's option clauses, country-specific clauses, then special clauses, Z, so that's blank. So you put in your, your own special stuff as Z clauses. Um, we can price it many different ways. We can do fixed price. Turnout costs, target costs, cost reimbursable. So there's different methods of pricing, uh, which obviously correlate with the project, but also with some collaborative ways of doing things. Um, and then we've got these option clauses here. So you sort of pick them and it tells you which ones you can't use together with another one. So if you look at number 11 there, for example, it says, if you're using this, don't use 19. So it kind of gives you a bit of a, a guide around that. But at the end of the day, there are some Clauses in this contract which make it collaborative, as I've said before, such as good faith, early warning, dispute resolution processes, governance management, no delineation between delay costs and um, extension of time claims. They, every, every single delay comes with cost. So there's no kind of time, no cost stuff and cost with time differences. All of the delays um, are compensable, all of them, which is, and, and, and frankly, why not? Uh, if you're a contractor. And so that's sort of the starting point there. And as I say, if we in Australia, because we're so used to sort of saying, well, you can have money for that, but you can't have money for that. If we continue to do that, then all we're doing is turning a perfectly good collaborative NEC4 contract into an AS4902. And we don't want to do that. Well, I don't want to do that. Um, so we've got some Australian clauses in the Y section around security of payment. Um, there's some great opportunities here uh, because our current standards are outdated. And again, I'm not having a shot at anybody or anything. It's just a fact. They are um, a long, uh, they've not been updated for a long time. They need a lot of change from us lawyers and they need to be improved both philosophically as an approach in terms of adversarial versus collaborative, but also just fixing them for risk allocation and legislative change. 
The Australian market makes it difficult, though, because of jurisdictional differences as well. So when we look at SOPA, when we look at things uh, like work health and safety, whatever it might be, there are little nuances and little differences all around the place that makes it hard to standardise uh, around Australia. So that's just a fact. Sydney Water and Main Roads Victoria also has recently started to adopt NEC4. So that's the presentation. Thanks very much. Thank you.